Well, if you are just joining us, my name is Kyle. I have been in and out, uh, called away some, but I am. Uh, I get to, to be called the pastor here, and, uh, and that's a great privilege, and uh, the primary teacher of church. And we have been on a, on a series uh, looking at the Lord's Supper. Why the Lord's Supper, and what is the meaning of this meal? And I have been, the way that I'm organizing this series is around key terms that are associated with this meal. Terms like Eucharist, and memorial, and communion. In fact, that's the term that we started looking at a couple weeks ago, that the Lord's Supper is a communion. And we looked at how the implications that has for our relationship with God. But today I'm going to continue looking at that term, but I want to look at the implications that it has for our relationships with one another. But before we do that, I need to, I need to pray. I need to pray. Let me pray. Try in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are life. And so we ask that you would give us yourself in the words of life that we might have life and have it abundantly. Life with you and life with one another. We pray these things for Christ's sake, by the Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't think church is all that important. I'm pretty sure that I can have a vibrant relationship with Jesus um, and quite apart from the church. You've probably heard someone say these kinds of things. In a room this size, I'm sure you have felt these sentiments. The church. Why the church? Let's be honest, the church has fallen on hard times, especially in a day and time when institutional religion has fallen on hard times. Uh, One recent poll that I read showed that there has been um, a drop that has been twice as significant in the last couple years than was happened in the 60s and 70s when there was a pretty tremendous drop in in church attendance and church involvement and commitment to the church. And there are lots of uh, reasons for this. Uh, The best motion picture of last year, Spotlight, only points that out. There have been lots of atrocities done under the umbrella of the church and in the church's name. And if you spend any time with the church, then and those of you who have spent time with the church, you know that you can get hurt by the church. Many of you have been hurt very deeply by the church. And so because of that, we have a reluctance to identify with the church. But I don't think that's the only reason that we have a reluctance to identify with the church. It's not simply the sins of the church within. It's also the cultural moment that we live in now. So we live in a moment of intense individualism. Uh, We are the I generation, uh, quite literally. And the iPhone and iPad is just a very potent symbol of that. Where our world is about us. It's a cultural moment in which Robert Bella, the sociologist, says that a powerful cultural fiction is at play, and that is this, that we, cannot, uh, that we 
not only can but must make up our deepest beliefs in in the isolation of our private selves. And I think that's right. Our mantra is you have to be true to yourself. That is, I have to find out what's true and I have to do so apart from any type of community, especially the community of the church. And so it's in that place that we come, and most people who are believers, consider themselves Christians, that come into this room would say, Jesus, yes. Church, maybe. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, then you probably say, Jesus, maybe. The church, no. Well, why am I talking about the church? I mean... Aren't we in the middle of a series on communion? And what does communion have to do with the church? I would suggest to you quite a lot. And in order to prove that, I'm going to look at Paul's instructions to the Corinthians, and we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at the power of communion. We're going to look at the Corinthians' problem with communion. And then we're going to look at the practice of communion. So power, problem, practice. Yes, that's three points, three Ps, and if you play your cards right, you might get a poem at the end of this. Okay? So first, the power of communion. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we started the series by looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 21. And, and there, Paul is talking about these various meals, and I said to understand what he's saying about these meals, you have to understand that Paul's understanding of the world, his outlook on the world, is that it is a very enchanted one. It is what I called a world with windows, where in and behind the natural order of things and the things that we see, there are actually supernatural realities. There Paul talks about eating at these pagan temple feasts, and he says there, there are these supernatural realities behind these meals that connect one to these meals. He calls them the tables of demons. And if you eat at these tables, you actually are bound up with and participate in the life of these demons. See, a world with windows. It requires imagination. Uh, But it's not just uh, that those tables have supernatural powers connected with them. It's also the Lord's table. See, Paul says there in verse 16 of chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, you need to understand that he has two basic assumptions that are going on. One is that the Lord's Supper is a participatory meal. By that, I mean that he believes that Jesus is not only present at the table, but he gives himself to us, body and blood, that we participate in him. That we eat his flesh and we drink his blood. Unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us. You say, but that's just a metaphor. Yes, it's a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. The metaphor speaks to reality, which is greater than the metaphor, not less than. See, here we participate in Christ. He gives himself to us. But it's not just that. I mean, everything that Paul is saying, therefore, is is predicated upon this idea that a Christian is one who is really and vitally and truly, though mysteriously and incomprehensibly, united to Christ. That we have his life in us and our lives are hid in him. But the second thing that Paul assumes is not simply that this is a participatory meal, but he assumes that it's a communal affair. 
I mean, even his, uh, even his exclamation here is, uh, assumes this, the cup that we bless, the bread that we break. See, it's not that I simply come to the Lord's table as an individual, it's that we come together. And it's not just that I eat the bread and participate in the body and blood of Jesus, it's that you eat the bread and you eat the bread and you eat the bread and you eat the bread. You see, we all participate in this together. And so what's the result? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. See, because you eat the bread, and you eat the bread, and you eat the bread, and I eat the bread, and when we come and we eat the bread together, and we participate in Christ, and we're connected with him, we actually are all connected to one another. My great-grandmother lived in the booming metropolis of Crowder, Mississippi. Crowder, Mississippi had 560 residents in 2000, and I would go visit her sometimes. One time I was at her house, and she was watching wrestling because Granny loved wrestling. And as she was watching wrestling, I decided that I need to use the phone. And so I picked up Granny's phone, and I heard these voices on the other end of Granny's phone, and I'm thinking like, who are these voices? I don't know these voices. So I look around the house, and her house is very small. Uh, and I'm like, there are no other people here. And then I'm looking, Granny doesn't even have another phone. So I'm like, Granny, there are voices on your phone. Where are they coming from? She goes, oh, that's just the neighbors. I'm thinking, the neighbors? What? Yes, because in Crowder, Mississippi, in 1995, you had to have what's called a party line. You know what a party line is? For those of you who are not old enough, a party line is where your phone is connected. You share a line with several other residents, and it's all connected into a circuit hub so that when you pick the phone up, you're connected with all these other people and all their conversations. It's a party line. It's like you're in one house, even though you aren't in one house. You're all connected together. And usually you have to say, excuse me, and it would be the polite thing to hang up, but I'm sure in small town Crowder, Mississippi, well, I don't want to know what happened. But in a similar way, you see, Paul says that each of us is connected to and participate in the circuit hub of Jesus. And because we are all connected to and participate in the circuit hub of Jesus, it means that we are all vitally connected to and participate in one another, that we are united to one another. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that we are one body. One body, one living, vibrant organism. Whose body? What body? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to guess. Paul goes on to make it explicit in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, Paul's thesis, which is my thesis, is this that the division between the bread at the table and the body of Christ is a porous one. That we live in a world with windows. And that the division between the physical body of Christ and the body of Christ, which is his church, is a porous one. That is, that you can hardly distinguish one from the other. It's why when Jesus came 
to Paul when he was known as Saul at that time and persecuting Christians on the road to Damascus, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus does not distinguish between his physical body and the body which is his community, the church. It's why when Jesus says, uh, you know, when you hand out a cup of cold water or give someone uh, something to eat who is poor, he says, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And, and so this table, you see, is very powerful because it powerfully connects us to Christ, but it also powerfully connects us to one another. For there is one bread, one bread, and we who are Many are one body. Why? You don't have to ask, because we all partake of the one bread. And here's what this means. It means that communion gives the lie to the idea that church is an unnecessary add-on, an appendix to the Christian life. Take it or leave it. It gives the lie to this idea that I can have a healthy, vibrant relationship with God in Christ without a healthy and vibrant relationship to his church. No, you can't have that. You see, the Christian life is not about just me and Jesus because union with Christ is not just about me and Jesus. To be united with Christ, I'm united to his body. It's a package deal. It's like if I were stranded on an island and, uh, and someone came and they said, um, you know, Kyle, um, you look, uh, well, this is imaginary. You look really strong, and so we want you to come work for us. And I was there with my family, and I said, um, so they'd probably say that to Pam, but <laughs> it's my dream. And so, you, you know, you look really strong. We want you to come work for us. And I said, well, if I go, they go. You don't get me without them. You see, it's a package deal. Well, in the same way, you don't get Jesus without getting his body. You don't get Jesus without getting his church. To be united to him is to be united with the rest of his body. And so here's the question I have for you this morning. Are you willing to identify with Jesus' body? Are you willing to identify with the church? But because... Here at the table, it's an expression not only of our union with Jesus, but our union with one another. And so we can't actually have a healthy relationship with him without having a healthy relationship with one another, which brings us to the Corinthians' problem with this meal. Our second point. The Corinthians' problem with this meal. The Corinthian church was um, a very unique church. They were plagued by divisions. Uh, you've probably never heard of a church like that at all. Um, they were plagued by divisions. In fact, we can see that right there. It's from the earliest part of the letter, but you can see it right there in verse 18. When you come together as a church, this is of chapter 11, I hear that there are divisions among you. And these divisions that were going on, these factions in the Corinthian church, they were playing out most pointedly, most focusedly in their celebration of the Lord's table. Look verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God 
and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what is going on here? Because Paul's pretty exercised. What is going on? Well, here's what's going on. Back in that day, uh, the world, the Corinthian world, the world that the Corinthians knew, was a world that revolved around meals. Banquets were, banquets were everywhere. They did meals for every occasion. And uh, in every kind of, every kind of um, business that you were involved in had guilds, and these guilds had dinners. And in order to be connected in, in, and actually have a license to do any kind of work, carpentry or whatever, you had to be part of these guilds. And at these guilds, these dinners, they... Um, well, they held them in a certain way. They had different classes. There was first class and there was second class. Uh, and um, the first class people, they got to sit at the head of the table. They got to have the best food. And the other people were sat in, at the end of the table or maybe in a different room, and they were served different types of food. And this is just the world in which the Corinthians lived in. It's kind of like the world we live in. I was stuck in Amarillo and I felt like it was the great equalizer because me and the first class people, I always envy the first class people when I'm walking through. I know some of you are first class people, you business people. I envy you. But I was walking through and I'm like, oh, the first class people. But then when you're stuck in Amarillo, you're all in this together, right? (laughs) Trust me. Unless your son sends a private jet to pick you up, which happened to one of the people. But I had my moment of feeling that we were all equal. But, but, but in the same way that there are these distinctions in our world, there are these distinctions at a wedding. You have those who sit with the bride and groom, the wedding party and everyone else. And, and those who sit with the bride and groom, they might get a nicer wine. If you go to England and you go study at Oxford or Cambridge, they've got, they've got different meals and dinners. And there are the students who sit at the low tables and then there are the professors who sit at high table. And what they get at high table is very different than what the students get. In the same way, this is what was going on in the Corinthians world. And the way that they were celebrating this Lord's Supper was mimicking that. See, the rich people, they were eating and gorging and drinking and feasting. But the poor were separated out, the weak. And so Paul's exercise, well, why? I mean, they were just doing what was natural to their culture. Well, consider this. Have you ever thought about this? That often the New Testament ethical instructions are played out over meals. When Paul confronts Peter, when he says he's not living in step with the truth of the gospel, it's because of the way he ate, because he pulled away from Gentiles and having table fellowship with them. When Paul writes to the Galatians about the same thing and says, you're in danger of abandoning the gospel. Why? It's because of the way that they ate. When James writes uh, to the church and condemns them for the way that they're treating the poor, it has to do with the way that they ate. And when Paul writes to the church at Rome and he tells them to welcome one another and extend hospitality, he thinks that this is going to play out, especially the welcome of Jew and Gentile, primarily over meals, the table. And so here, in a similar way, Paul's instructions to the Corinthians about the way that they are acting 
and the ethics of the gospel play out over a table. Why? Because the realization or the unrealization of the gospel in our lives and in the world primarily plays out at the table. And table manners. You see, the reason why Paul is so exercised is because the way the Corinthians were performing the meal and celebrating the Lord's Supper, it told a lie about the body of Christ. You see, Paul says, we who are many are one, for we all partake of the one bread. But instead of being unified, they are divided, verse 18 of chapter 11. They're telling a lie about the body of Christ. They're also telling a lie about the gospel of Christ. See, the gospel of Christ is the gospel of the good news about the kingdom and is the good news that God accepts us regardless of worth, that God gives us a gift. And that gift is the gift of eternal life, which is really the gift of another's life, the life of Jesus Christ for you and in you. And that gift is given to people without regard to worth. And the only thing that makes those who have the gift worthy is the fact that they have the gift. You see, the gift itself is what creates worth. And yet, instead of accepting all on the basis of their relationship to Christ and the worth that He brings, they are discriminating on the basis of class, verse 22. There are factions and elitism. And to the extent that some are going hungry and others are going, getting drunk, verse 21. And so Paul says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you were eating, verse 20. You know, table manners say a lot about who you are and where you're from. What people you belong to. When I was, um, uh, if you want to know, well, let's say, when you're traveling around internationally, you know, I'm always like looking for the Mar Americans, right? And one way you tell the Americans is that they're really loud. Um, but if they're not being really loud, then the other way you tell is that when they eat, they have a, 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 a fork in one hand, a knife in the other, they cut, and if, you, if you're not talking or anything, you can't tell if they're Americans, it, the really easy way to tell is that they put the knife down, and then they switch their hand, and they put the fork in the right hand, and then they, they eat. You see, European would never do that. Europeans, they eat with both utensils in both hands, and they say that we're not coordinated enough. Um, to do that. We think it looks like Neanderthal to shovel food and like that, but that's how they do it. And you can even tell distinctions beyond that. Like if you want to tell a continental European versus someone from the UK, do you know how you do it? It's the flip of the fork. So if you're on the continent, they flip their fork down and scoop up, right? But if you are in the UK, you, you, you stab something and then you pile your vegetables or rice on top of the fork and eat that way. You don't flip. See, see, the way that we eat, or if you're in a different culture, completely different culture, a non-Western culture, maybe you don't even use utensils or use a very different type of utensil like chopsticks. See, table manners say a lot about who you are, what kingdom you belong to, what domain, who your sovereign is. Well, if you would ever look at me eat, one of the things that you would find is that... Uh, I picked up, for whatever reason, when I was younger, eating in the British style. And so if you were to see me eat, uh, I don't eat like an American, even though I'm very American. And in essence, like the way that I hold my fork and knife and the way that I eat, and, and if I come to your house and you just have a fork, I'll probably ask for a knife. I'm not trying to be rude. 
It's the way that I eat now. So give me an, a, a knife no matter what. And so, but the way that I eat, in, in some ways, it, it kind of tells a lie about who I am. Because I'm kind of saying that I'm British, but I'm not British. I'm American, you see. And, and the way that the Corinthians were eating, it was telling a lie about who they are. It was telling a lie about who they are as the body of Christ. It was telling a lie about who God is and what the gospel is about and the gift of Christ. See, the way they were eating at the meal was telling a lie. And so Paul gives them this warning. Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Paul warns them not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Well, what would that mean? Well, that brings us to our final point, the practice of this meal. The practice of this meal. What does it mean to, to eat, to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Well, first, let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that one has to be worthy, i.e. sinless or something like that, to come to this table. It doesn't mean that one has to exercise enough faith to be able to come to this table as if it's the amount of faith that actually gets you here. No, this table is actually for the unworthy in that respect. This table is for sinners. And God opens his hospitality up to all of us sinners who are willing to trust in Jesus and find our worth in him. That is not what he says. It's not about, it's not about being worthy or unworthy. It's about eating in an unworthy manner. And the word here uh, for worthy is another way. It's, it's the, it's, it comes from the Greek word axios. And it, another way to translate it is the word, it's fitting, corresponding. That is that to eat in a fitting manner is to, or to eat in an unfitting manner, is to eat in a manner that isn't in keeping with the meaning of this meal. It's to tell a lie at the table. And so, so the Corinthians, they are eating in a way that telling a lie about the table, they are eating in an unworthy manner. How? Well, they're failing to discern the body, verse 29. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to discern the body? Well, what is the body? You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are all one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. See, that's how they're not discerning the body. To discern the body is to actually has to do with how they're looking upon and treating the community of the people of God. The way that they failed to discern the body, verse 22, is that they despised the church of God and humiliated those who had nothing. And so then Paul says, verse 28, let a person then examine himself so as not to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So what does it mean to eat? Well, here... It's to eat, to eat in an unworthy manner is to eat in a way that's unfitting to this meal. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way you do it is you do it the way the Corinthians did it. You do it by mimicking the divisions of the world. That's how you do it. Uh, the difference between 
the Lord's Supper and its perversion at Corinth had nothing to do with their intellectual comprehension of what happens to the bread and the wine. It had nothing to do with uh, whether or not they understood penal substitution. And it had everything to do with despising weaker members. And so sometimes, actually, we might be in danger if we keep weaker members of the body of Christ from this table of actually doing the very thing that Paul is warning against because of their lack of intellectual comprehension. Something that we need to think about. But we can mimic the divisions of the world. I was at a church recently that, uh, it's a beautiful church, and I love the church, um, but this church has a spotted history, as all churches do. And one of the things that they did uh, that was very gross and very spotted in their history is that they mimicked the divisions of the world by not allowing, as a church in the South, African-American members to come to communion. And then, uh, in a day when you had separate, separate uh, water fountains and separate entrances, you have separate communion tables. They mimic the divisions of the world. And in doing so, tell a lie about the table. That's how you eat in an unworthy manner. They don't do that anymore. No, the Lord has worked uh, greatly in their congregation. But that is one way. How do we mimic the divisions of the world? Do we make it harder for people? Do we make more stumbling blocks to the gospel? Do we put cultural stumbling blocks to the gospel in front of people that are more than what is intrinsic to the gospel itself? It's worth considering. Another way that you can, you can actually tell a lie about the table and eat in an unfitting manner is to actually refuse to identify with the church. See, to participate in this meal, in the Lord's Supper, is a form of identification with the church. You are saying, we are all one body because we all partake in the one loaf. So if you partake in the loaf, you're identifying with the church. So here's the question. Are you telling a lie by not being willing to identify with the church? You say, how would I identify with the church? Well, let me give you two ways. One way is through baptism. Have you been baptized? Paul says that's how we initially are baptized into the body of Christ, the church. Look in chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into the one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. See, if you're unwilling to be baptized, then you should not come to this table. If you have not been baptized, then you should not come to this table. And that principle has always been there. The text that was read earlier in Exodus about the Passover, did you notice how, how strong they uh, made the language about um, if someone wants to take the Passover, if a sojourner is traveling with you or one of your slaves and they want to take, they have to be circumcised first. See, circumcision was identification with the covenant people of God. And if you're unwilling to identify with, then you shouldn't come to the table. That's why we welcome baptized Christians. Uh, moreover, though, it's not just about, it's not just about baptism. Um, Paul's analogy of the body in chapter 12, it, it assumes mutual dependence. He says, how can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? 
And so to identify with the church, uh, you actually need to be willing, are you willing to identify with the church in such a way, to be connected and committed in such a way that there is mutual dependence, that you are dependent on the church and they are dependent on you? Is that your level of involvement and commitment? So we don't have to use words like membership, but we can talk about commitment. And are you willing to commit or do you float from one place to the next? See, if you're not willing to identify with the church, then then you shouldn't come to this table because it tells a lie. You say, well, Kyle, that's that's kind of heavy hitting. I know, I know, especially in this culture where... We are the radicalist of individuals, and we don't want to identify with the church. I know it is. But Paul's heavier hitting. He says that when we come and we tell a lie, we eat judgment upon ourselves. Why do you think some of you are getting sick and dying? Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that if we, we could get sick and die? It's a world with windows. It requires imagination. The table is powerful. And besides, I mean, think of it like this. I mean, see, Jesus, he identifies with the church because the church is his body. He identifies with the church even though he knows that the church is, is sinful. You see, he, he loved the church. He loved the church and he made her part of his body even though she was unlovely. And so if you want Jesus to identify with you, then, then you need to identify with the church because the church is who he loves, who he gives himself up for, who he washes and purifies with his word who he's making beautiful because he loves her. So uh, you need to identify with the church. I mean, because, you know, if you don't do that, if you come forward and, and you don't identify with the church, then here's what you're saying. You're saying, I want the benefits of covenant relationship without the commitment of covenant relationship or the public identification of the covenant relationship. You know what we call that? I want the benefits of the covenant relationship without the commitment, long-term commitment, and without the public identification. We have a word for that in our culture. It's called a one-night stand. That's what you're doing when you come to the table. So that's what it looks like to, to eat and drink in a, in a manner that's unworthy. But what would it look like to, to eat and drink in a manner that is worthy? Well, first, it looks like seeking unity. Uh, Seeking unity. We are all one body, for we partake of the one loaf, and so, therefore, we need to seek unity as we express unity in the church. This is why, consequently, that in those instructions that were read about Passover, it's very interesting. You know, uh, um, uh, God tells the Israelites, when you take the lamb, don't send part of the lamb out to the slaves so that they can eat it. Don't send part of the Passover meal out to the slaves so they can eat it. You think, well, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound right. Why, why wouldn't you? Uh, why wouldn't you? Because the slaves are to eat in at the table. Because the lamb is not to be divided. See, at the table, all social distinctions are leveled. The lamb is not to be divided. And so when we come, we come seeking unity. It's the same reason when Jesus gives those instructions on the Sermon on the Mount and he says, um, you know, remember that place when he says, when you're coming to the altar and you're bringing your gift to the altar, it's actually the term for peace offerings. Those offerings that like Passover where the worshiper would eat. 
that say you're reconciled with God and with one another. He says, if you're coming and you realize that your brother has something against you, not just you have something against your brother, your brother has something against you, what does he say? Leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. Because otherwise you're telling a lie. You seek reconciliation at this table. Are you seeking to be reconciled with brothers and sisters? Do not come if you're harboring resentment. Do not come. And don't just wait. No, go be reconciled. You know, there are various ways in which you can, um, you can administrate, what, you know, do the Lord's Supper. Many valid ways. Uh, but, you know, we allow space every time. We actually have several songs and we allow space to give you an opportunity so that if you know that someone has someone against you or you have someone against them, you can meet them in the back of the church and you can, have, you can come to Jesus. And you can say, I want to be reconciled with you. Are we good? Can we seek peace together? And can we go to the table together? Let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you to do that. Seek unity. The Didache, the earliest Christian um, instruction manual for worship said, let no one who has a quarrel with a companion join you until they have been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. Reconcile with one another and then come. Come. So first, we seek unity, but second, we express unity. And Paul tells them to wait for one another in verse 33. That, that's what he said. Instead of doing what you're doing, wait for one another. And I don't think by that, which it's a fine token of expression of our unity in Christ to all eat at the same time or drink at the same time. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's saying, like, you know, don't wait for one another, like, don't all the rich people get together before the poor people come and eat everything and have the feast, right? He's saying, actually, do this and express unity together. Which, which means if you're expressing the unity of the church and you're doing it together, then you need to actually come as the church. And Paul assumes in his instructions to the Lord's Supper that this is as the church gathers. Look in 11.18. When you come together as the church. You know, oftentimes I hear of people, individual Christians, that, that they want to they eat the supper, and so uh, they, they maybe college students in their dorm room have communion, or friends on a camping trip have communion. But I don't think that's the Lord's Supper that you're eating, because that's not the church. The church are those people who are actually united not on the basis of the fact that they all like homebrew or they all like some uh, settlers of Catan or all these other affinities that we have in the, out in the world out there. No, what brings us together, despite all our differences, is the fact that Jesus died for us and we accept him. And that's what unifies us. And that's what the church is. The church is actually learning to love all these people on the basis of nothing other than Jesus and his sacrifice. And so we come to the church and we express our unity as the church, which is a unity which can only be created by God in Christ. So, so it assumes that we, that, we, that we come together, that we meet together as a church. And the church, by the way, also has institutional, an institutional side. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, to the church with its elders and deacons. I don't, you probably don't have elders and deacons of your dorm suite. You probably don't have elders and deacons of your camping crew. 
the church with its elders and deacons. But, but it's not only that, we express it, uh, we express it the way you express anything at a feast. You know, there's a difference between a meal and a feast, don't you? You can eat a meal in your car, you can eat a meal at your computer, you can eat a meal, uh, you can eat a meal in lots of places by yourself, but you know, when you eat a meal, you can satisfy those biological needs, but a feast, a feast you can never do alone. A feast is always more than eating and drinking. It's not less than eating and drinking, but it's always more. See, at a feast, you not only share your bread, you share your life. And so, if you want what it means to eat this in a worthy manner, in a fitting manner of what it is, it means that we actually express our unity together. And that's another reason. That's another reason why the majority of the year when we have communion, we come forward. Because if... You know, it's perfectly fine to sit in the pew and pass out the bread and the wine. But to think, think about it like this. When you did that, how much did you think about the body of Christ? How much did you discern the congregation compared to when people get up and come forward and you see them pass by? And by the way, this means actually we can talk to one another. It's okay. It's not irreverent. It's actually expressing the body of Christ. We come to one another and we talk to one another and we say, (laughs) we encourage one another. We pray for one another. That's what we do at this table. We relate not only to the Lord, but we relate to one another. And I would even suggest to you that we relate to the Lord by relating to one another because we are his body. And the division, it's very porous, you see. And so that's what we do when we come to this table together. We celebrate the feast. The Lord's Supper is an irreducibly social affair. And we need to express that in the way we come to the table. Uh, and, and we are expressing a unity, by the way, that is not something that we create. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said that Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ, which we may participate in. And that's what we do. We participate in something that is created by God. We are one in him. He has made us one together. He has divided the wall of hostility. We can either reject his work or we can live into it. And at this table, we not only express that, but the table actually forms us in that. You know, we think about your children. There are certain table manners that they have to pick up before they come to the table, right? There are certain manners that they need to know before they can actually sit at the table. Otherwise, you leave them in the high chair. But you know, there are certain family table manners that they learn actually as they're there. I was back at that church. I mentioned worshiping, and, and I was there, and, and we took communion. And, uh, and it was a beautiful thing because an African-American elder served me communion. And there were African-American families coming up and taking communion. See, what had happened at that church is that they came around the table in peace and love and unity. And as they came around the table more and more, they started to realize that, you know what? The only thing that made me worthy of this table was Jesus. And the only thing that makes another person worthy is Jesus. And and, and he loves me, not because I'm lovely, but to make me lovely. And and he loves them, not because they're lovely, but to make them lovely. And, And here, we are all together. We are all unified at the table. And the more and more we come, the more and more God forms us into 
that which he has already created us to be in Christ. So get ready to come. Lord, we do pray that you would make us into that which we are in Christ.